Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Ball and Chain podcast. I am your host, Mark Thomas, coming to you from pretty sunny Southern California uh, here on Monday, uh, May 10th. Um, We are excited to be getting several more episodes of our podcast up and running. Uh, We had episode 20 about a week and a half ago. Uh, and we are uh, ready to rock and roll with a couple episodes uh, for this week. Uh, super excited uh, for the guests that we have today. Uh, but first, uh, just a couple of housekeeping items uh, that we always go over. So uh, this podcast is brought to you by Zen Sports, uh, which is the sports betting platform that gives customers more choice to bet uh, with the house or against the house or peer to peer as well as via with cryptocurrencies or with fiat. And uh, it's pretty cool. We actually, uh, over at Zen Sports, just launched Parlay Cards a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, those are up and running and going really well. Uh, super excited for that. We've got a lot of customers who are creating and uh, betting on Parlay Cards, which is awesome. Uh, really glad that we finally got that feature out the door. And uh, in terms of other updates, we've got our Nevada gaming license, which uh, should be in effect at some point in the next few months, we're shooting for the end of August, which we're obviously very excited about. And at that point, we will be up and running, as Zen Sports will be, in Nevada. And uh, yeah, other news on the uh, Wisconsin sports front, uh, I pretty much would rather just not talk about the Aaron Rodgers situation. Well, okay, let me make one comment on this. I have to say that the Aaron Rodgers situation at this point is pretty much 100% um, about geography. I don't buy the rift with the GM nonsense. Uh, I think all those things are amenable. Um, honestly, I don't even really buy that. It's a money situation. I think that he's got plenty of money and they'd be able to redo his contract at any point in time. I really think this has to do with the fact that he probably wants to, um, move a bit closer to California. He wants to do the jeopardy thing. Uh, his new girlfriend's probably uh, chirping in his ear a little bit about, moving closer to Hollywood. And uh, while we obviously certainly love it here in Southern California, which is why we're here, I'm really not understanding if he wants to win a Super Bowl, why he'd want to leave the Packers. He's got the best wide receiver in the game in Devontae Adams. He's got a million weapons, Aaron Jones, Tunyon, amazing offensive line, um, improving defense. Uh, And so I'm not really quite sure, uh, you know, what that's all about, except for probably guessing that it's geography. He just probably wants to be somewhere else at this point. So, Hopefully they can find a way to keep them. They're not trading them. Uh, I don't see that happening in any way, shape or form. That um, just doesn't make any sense. So I think calling his bluff at this point has probably been the best move and uh, we shall see, but I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that uh, everything is going to work out and he'll be in training camp uh, this summer. Uh, and my bucks are making the push for the second seed. We've got five games to go. Um, they are tied in the loss column with the Brooklyn Nets and hopefully they can finish that out, get the two seed, play one of the teams that had to go through the play-in game at the seven seed, and then if uh, they meet the Nets in the uh, conference semis, uh, conference semifinals, they would have home court against the Nets. Uh, so, and I think they stack up super well against the Nets and the, the Sixers. They won the season series against both of them. Uh, they swept the Sixers, and I think that uh, they've handled the regular season the right way. So I'm super excited for uh, the playoffs. I think they've got a deep run in them. I've got a lot better outside shooters. I think Brent Forbes is going to be amazing. Obviously, Drew Holiday is a huge st- upgrade and step up over Eric Bledsoe. So all these things 
I think are pointing in the direction of a deep playoff run and hopefully the Packer or the Bucks uh, make that happen uh, because the last few seasons have obviously been pretty disappointing. So with all of that, Oh, and by the way, the Brewers aren't doing too bad either. Uh, so with all of that out of the way, um, let's get into our guest for episode uh, and podcast episode 21. I'd like to welcome Max Bixel from uh, gambling.com. Uh, thank you for joining me on this evening, Max. How are you tonight? I'm doing very well, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So gambling.com. Um, am I correct to assume that this is uh, the gambling.com uh, heavily focuses on uh, content, media, affiliate marketing, um, and what your role is there? If you could give us a background as to um, you know, what you do at gambling.com and what your company is all about for our audience, that would be a great way to kick things off here. Sure, absolutely. So currently I look after uh, gambling.com groups, U.S. business, uh, and really what gambling.com group, the group as a whole, is a large piece of media that's focused on iGaming and sports, right? So um, we're not just gambling.com, that's obviously our flagship brand, but we have dozens of sites that are focused on uh, iGaming and sports. And all of these sites generate some sort of content around industry news, reviews, different offers that our partnering sports books and partnering online casinos offer customers in a varying uh, degree of different jurisdictions. So everywhere from Germany and the UK to Colorado and Pennsylvania. Got it. So our US business is focused on a number of different products naturally as legislation permits. So uh, we do business in every jurisdiction and, and our goal is really just to help players start their online gambling journey, uh, whether it's looking for an online casino, if they live in Pittsburgh or if they live in uh, Indianapolis and they're looking for the best sports book in Indiana, uh, inevitably they'll end up, hopefully end up on one of our sites and we'll be able to give them some information that will help them uh, start their adventure into online sports betting or online casino. So um, were you in the Nevada market prior to PASPA being struck down by the Supreme Court and it was only Nevada that was offering sports betting were was gambling.com in Nevada then or did gambling.com only enter the US market after PASPA was struck down in May of 2018 yeah so gambling.com entered the US market uh, as PASPA was repealed uh, the Nevada market is interesting one because there is no online casino the online okay. casino is one of the most is, is significantly more popular. Uh, on a per capita basis than online sports betting, but mm -hmm. the on-site registration requirement in the state of Nevada uh, makes it very difficult for an affiliate and effectively eliminates the need for affiliates because users have to inevitably travel to casinos to place their first bet. So Nevada has never been uh, a significant market for us, um, but I expect over the next several years, the legislative climate and the regulatory climate adjusts, uh, I think it will be in the next several years. Yeah. And actually, you know, we're, we're going through the gaming license process <clears throat> ourselves for Zen sports that I mentioned at the top of the, the pod, and we kicked off that process last summer. And so really from beginning to end, end of last summer, from beginning to end, we're looking at about 12 months uh, to go through the entire gaming license and tech certification process. Um, and, you know, it's been very interesting what you talked about, kind of the one foot rule, quote unquote, that um, basically requires customers, as you mentioned, to register in person to bet on sports uh, and no online casinos currently. 
uh, there's kind of been some rumblings that there might at some point uh, they might eliminate that one foot rule, which we, of course, certainly hope they, that they do. Um, and I think, you know, if you really look at the future of sports betting, I think I think the regulatory bodies are going to just become more and more tech friendly uh, because, one, that's what customers and consumers want. Uh, they don't want roadblocks kind of getting in the way of telling them how and in which manner they need to bet and all that kind of good stuff. And as long as it's safe and, and legal and everything like that, it's fine. And of course, with all the, you know, the, the techno technological uh, advances in KYC and AML verifications, um, it's uh, there's really no reason to require the in-person sign up anymore. Uh, so yeah, we're pretty confident. We've kind of heard some rumblings that they're going to move in that direction eventually. And then also I think possibly adding, uh, online casinos, uh, online uh, mobile wagering for casino gaming. Uh, so uh, we're pretty hopeful that that happens. It's not going to happen overnight, uh, but I think I think there's still certainly some openness to it in Nevada, which is awesome. Um, so, but let's talk about the other states that uh, do allow. Do, can you kind of give an overview of how many? So we're, we're at about like 25, 26 states that allow for uh, sports betting now in the U.S. What does it look like for mobile casino games, and which states do you tend to have the biggest presence in right now? Yeah, for sure. So it is at some times you read headlines and they are a bit misleading when they say nearly half of the states in the U.S. Uh, have sports betting. Uh, inevitably, people associate sports betting with online sports betting. Um, and whether that's correct or incorrect, mm -hmm. that, that's for someone else to decide. But it is fairly misleading because you have states like Oregon, where there's a monopoly on the sports betting business. There's one operator. There's one person that you're able to place bets with. Uh, similarly, in New York State right now, you can only place bets uh, at upstate casinos. So if you live in New York City and you read a headline that New York has sports betting, that's four hours away from you. Uh, mm -hmm. So it is, it is a bit misleading. Uh, so as a result, we focus where those markets are uh, proliferated to the extent where they have online capabilities for casino and sports. So states like New Jersey, who has online casino and online sports, Pennsylvania, similarly, West Virginia, Michigan, uh, those are the biggest states in the market right now because they offer both products. Uh, on the other hand, there are other significant states that just have sports betting that will soon to be evaluating online casinos. So states like Illinois, Indiana, uh, Colorado, for example, there's still healthy markets and mm -hmm. there's really strong products in those markets and customers are able to understand what all of those options are. Uh, and it's very easy to get a bet down uh, once you decide that tricks you want to. So for us, we really focus on where someone can place a bet from the comfort of their home or in their car, uh, wherever they are, uh, be able to use their mobile device rather than having to travel to uh, a land-based casino to either register or just to place uh, a sports bet at a, a traditional ticket counter. Right. And I think New Jersey is really fascinating. Did you say that they do offer mobile casino wagering? Yes, they do. Absolutely. The largest market uh, in the U.S., close to nearly a billion dollars um, at the height of, of what we've seen. Pennsylvania similarly uh, took over a billion dollars in uh, online slot wagers over the past couple of as well. So we are talking about significant numbers in comparison to uh, some of the smaller sports betting numbers that are published. Right. And I think what's interesting about that and almost kind of a little bit tying it back to, say, states like Nevada that um, have had sports betting for quite some time, but maybe not quite as uh, forward thinking on the technology side, 
is I think a lot of states that are new and up and coming uh, in terms of or have recently legalized it in the last two, three years, you know, they have they have just from day one taken a very forward thinking technology first approach uh, to the sports betting and uh, casino wagering markets because they obviously want to maximize revenue. Um, and they, you can almost kind of say in some ways they didn't have any prior baggage of how, you know, uh, online sports betting and casino wagering uh, was done before. So it sounds like, you know, they're very just, you know, they, they only started with an open mind. And so that's what they have right now, uh, which is pretty cool. And I think, I think what's cool is that I, I think those states will actually put pressure on the states like Nevada, like Mississippi and like Oregon that kind of are maybe doing things a set certain way. Um, and, uh, it, you know, there's plenty of money to be had in those states that, you know, if they want to do it, like I know Mississippi, for example, they were disappointed in the amount of um, mobile wagering that they had. Well, mm-hmm. they only allow mobile wagering, what, on site at the casinos, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, well of yeah. course you're going to limit the amount of <laughs> revenue that you get when you do that. Yeah, it's very interesting. We talk about this often um, as a team um, and everyone in on our team has been in the industry for, for quite some time. And, it, and in the U.S. specifically, you have states that look at neighboring states uh, that have online sports betting and a state may not have anything uh, and they're jealous of that revenue. And then that other state adds online casino and they become exponentially more jealous as the tax revenue continues to increase. Uh, so naturally, the progression is positive because when you're talking to state legislators or governors who ultimately sign most of these bills, uh, that's really what matters to them. They, ma- they care about funding education. They care about funding public service projects or a specific project, similar to Colorado has a water project where all the proceeds from sports betting go. So there are some benefits to it. And these policymakers definitely get to a place where uh, they want their hand in the pot to make sure that they're collecting some of these revenues rather than having them walk across state lines uh, like they were in Philadelphia, which is very close to New Jersey. That revenue was walking across the border to New Jersey, Mm -hmm. Uh, Pennsylvania then regulated. Uh, similarly, Indiana uh, launched before Illinois, and then Illinois soon after followed suit, and then soon after that, Michigan followed suit. So it very much is a case of um, it travels, and the borders make a significant difference if you have a major city like New York City, uh, where a lot of revenue travels across the Hudson River to go place bets in New Jersey. Um, and that's something that the, the legislators in New York State are kicking around right now in the budget. Um, and it's gotten all the way up to Cuomo where he needs to make a decision on, on what needs to happen. So it is very uh, infectious is probably a good term for these days that um, the tax revenue can uh, interest the, the right people. Right. And let's talk about New York, because I think that is such an interesting situation there, which came out a few weeks ago, you know, that they're basically more or less going to going to legalize it, but they want to tax the operators at what 50% or something really ridiculously high like that. I mean, you know, when it, when it becomes that obtrusive or cost prohibitive or just not that, you know, great, you know, uh, from a, when you, when you factor in the customer acquisition costs it takes to obtain customers. And if you're having to give 50% of those revenues to the state in the form of, you know, taxes, you know, I, I don't know. Do you see them actually passing it at a fifty percent tax rate? Do you see the likes of you know DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM, et cetera, saying 
no thanks. I mean, your, your folks in New York City, which make up the largest portion of our, the potential customer base anyways, they're just going to travel to New Jersey anyways. Um, so why are we going to spend, you know, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 to acquire a customer and uh, give, you know, 50% of the revenue back to uh, the state of New York? Yeah, it's, it's there. They seem to be operating under the assumption that all things are equal um, across the board. Uh, different platforms are the same. Sports books are the same. The branding is the same. The products are the same. Cash out options are the same. The payment methods are the same. Uh, where in reality, that's the contrast to that. There are significant differences. There's differences in how to acquire customers. There's differences in how to retain customers. Uh, sports betting is not a commoditized business. If it was a commoditized business, um, you basically have a state-run sports book. Um, mm -hmm. You have that effectively in a few states right now, and they're wildly unsuccessful. Um, and you don't have to look far. And just having a significant multiple of a population is not the solution to that. Um, it very much is, in my opinion, not an if you build it, they will come uh, because they won't come. They will have no need to come if you have a subpar product. Uh, right. So as a result, it needs to be a place where you do have competition. Competition, if you look at New Jersey, the products are so much better. The tax revenues are so much higher. Uh, the customers are way more sticky than they are in other jurisdictions because there is so much competition. Operators are constantly vying for uh, share of wallet or uh, however you want, whatever metric you want to use to define it. It definitely is uh, the best way to regulate sports betting. You look in the UK, dozens of operators, the most successful sports betting market uh, in the world and the most successful online casino market in the world. Uh, and so if you look at the amount of revenue, if you take that and you extrapolate that onto the US, you'd think that New York would be an exceptionally important state. And as a result, uh, the state would continue to make money. Now there, it's an element of protectionism where they are trying to just make sure they make X amount and they can guarantee themselves that. Um, but they're severely limiting the upside. They may get a lot more money up front um, mm -hmm. and that may alleviate a lot of concerns. But if you're looking at this for what is going to contribute to the, the taxpayers in New York state, uh, you need to be thinking much longer term and, and much longer term is going to reap much greater benefits for the state. And it's just going to be a lot more fun. Now it's, there is a, a little bit of a cloud over it because of the potential restrictions, not for the players, whether or not they can't get a bet down, but how much fun, what types of bet they're going to be able to get down. Mm -hmm. Will they be able to shop around and find the best lines that they want to? Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that, that the state is overlooking in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't know, it just, it just feels, yeah, like you said, very short-sighted because if, um, if it's not friendly to all the operators out there, you're going to have only a few come in which obviously decreases competition, is bad for consumers, um, gives them less choice, creates a worse experience. And I mean, I think it's just pretty obvious the trend is moving in the direction of, of choice, of um, you know, breaking down the barriers, uh, whether that be somebody literally driving across you know, state lines to go place a bet, um, or maybe eventually having federal legislation that allows it. But it just, it just feels like, time is on the side of the regulators that are making it the most consumer friendly possible. And, um, you know, the days are numbered of the states that are, you know, trying to be restrictive of it, not that they will lose sports betting, but they will have, they will be probably forced to change. It feels like just to keep up and be competitive with those other states that are being consumer friendly. 
Yeah, and that's exactly right. You have some more progressive um, and not politically progressive, just forward thinking legislators that understand how much tax revenue can be earned by regulating it appropriately and giving people enough leash to do the right thing. And if you get enough good actors in a marketplace, uh, the just the factors of the competitive market will take care of a lot of things. And I think that's something that some of these bigger state uh, bigger states are overlooking because they see the massive amounts of revenue that can be generated, whether it's through a licensing fee or guarantees up front on tax payments or 50% rev share that goes straight to the state. That's incredibly easy to, to be short-sighted. So I do empathize and understand where they're coming from. Uh, but longer term, it's the model is clearly proven. It's been proven in Nevada and Atlantic City in the UK in Germany, in many other markets. So it's not a new phenomenon. This is something that's been proven and been around for a long time. Yeah, let's use it as a segue to actually kind of talk about what I hinted at a few minutes ago, which is the customer acquisition costs in this industry. And obviously, you know, affiliate marketers such as, you know, gambling.com definitely play in that world, right? Um, And I think it's been fascinating to see the steady climb in CAC customer acquisition costs over the last few years since PASPA has been repealed, um, you know, maybe three years ago, uh, four or $500 customer acquisition cost was totally acceptable. That was fine. Um, it was not unheard of sometimes even spend six, 700. And now you're seeing CACs and customer acquisition costs go to 1500, 1750, 2000, maybe even higher. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, just to, just to get the customer in the door in the first place. I mean, I think William Hill had a, uh, a promotion, I forgot when it was, a couple months ago, where they, I think they were offering like a $2,000 or something really, really high um, deposit bonus in Tennessee, um, mm-hmm. I think when they when they rolled out, when they launched in Tennessee. And so I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts from a from an industry insider as to, you know, what your thoughts are around customer acquisition costs and how it's gotten to where it has now and where do you see this going? Do you see it continuously increasing? Do you see it kind of maybe leveling off? Is it paying off for those operators that are spending quite a bit of money? Uh, I would just love to get your thoughts on that because I think a lot of those that bet on sports don't realize how much operators actually do spend to acquire customers in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's dissimilar to some other industries because it's, it's fairly unique, right? The, the lifetime value of customers in the iGaming space are depending on what sort of industry you're talking about, are significantly higher. And each operator has different expectations of what those lifetime values are. Some publicly traded companies in investor presentations will say they're $1,500 lifetime values for sports and $2,500 for casino. Others will say it's $8,000 for online casino. So it's more a function of if an operator is confident that they're going to be able to retain a customer extremely well and extremely profitably over the long term, they're willing to pay those upfront costs that are uh, much higher than you'd expect. Uh, but for some of the other ones that are still kind of learning the ropes, that may be a new operator in the space um, that haven't had as much experience as others are beginning to start at the bottom and work their way up so they don't overextend themselves and get to a point where they're paying for all these customers and the lifetime tri- lifetime value is different. Um, and, and like I said earlier, not all players are created equal, right? Mm-hmm. There's uh, quality of traffic that you can send to an operator. Some you may send, people are 
there's a there's a function in the industry where you just have a bunch of bonus abusers where people will deposit the minimum threshold to get the maximum bonus um, play through at whatever level they need to and then scrape whatever's left and they continually do that open up accounts for uh, their girlfriend, their wives, their buddies, their grandmother, their mother, their father, and they just continually do this. And that, that's a function of the business. That's just something that happens and it's, it's going to continue to happen. Um, and there's some operators that are fall victim to that. There's other operators that they can get really large customers that significantly move the needle and they're able to retain them, uh, whether it's a land-based operator who can offer that person uh, bonuses and promotions on site at the casino or just offer them great experiences online. Um, those ones are much more likely to pay up front because they know if they get them into the machine that they're going to be able to take care of them. The customer is going to enjoy themselves, uh, potentially refer new players. So it is the, the quality of traffic that drives those customer acquisition costs. And it's also the maturity of the market that uh, dictates those customer acquisition costs. So if you look in the UK, for example, uh, you start to see, uh, acquisition costs increase as the market matures, which is contrary to what most industry analysts suggest, or uh, a lot of these industry experts suggest that um, you just, you grow this stable of players and it continually feeds itself. Uh, where the right operators, the ones that have been around for a very long time that know how to do this exceptionally well, they continue to pay top rate premium customer acquisition costs because they're continually uh, want to reinforce that stable and make sure it's reinforced with quality traffic and not people that are taking advantage of the not types of players that they want. So it definitely is a function where there are some large customer acquisition costs, but I don't expect them to disappear anytime soon with new markets constantly opening up. Well, yeah. And as you kind of mentioned, because customers are so sticky and that lifetime value is so high, um, you know, as a market does mature, you know, there's fewer newer customers to get because all the players have already kind of picked their um, operator that they want to use. I, I wanted to come back to the, the deposit bonus fraud uh, and, and talk about that. So we certainly ran into that, you know, from time to time here at Zen sports, uh, which is, you know, it's maddening. Right. Um, and, and there's only yeah. so many things you can do. I mean, for example, like we, we got rid of our deposit bonus and moved to a welcome bonus, which is a refund of betting fees for the first 15 days. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to, you actually have to bet, like you have to, you don't just deposit, bet once or even two or three times, um, you know, on a rollover and then be done with it. Um, you know, we want, we want to know that you're actually in here to, to play for good. Um, and then we also have other rewards programs like cashback bonuses that you can earn or referral bonuses or uh, staking bonuses. If you leave your funds in the, in your wallet, stuff like that uh, to reward players over time. But I'm just kind of curious, like I've heard a lot of rumblings from, from other, you know, operators like at conferences and stuff like that, that they would just love to just, do away with deposit bonuses because it's such a, um, you know, it just attracts the wrong kind of customer. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on that topic because I think it is a really hot topic that does need to be addressed by this industry. You know, do you, do you see deposit bonuses going away? Do you see them being tied to other contingencies? Um, I just don't know of any other industry that just flat out gives free money away, um, you know, to, to try something out and hoping that they stay without some other kind of terms and conditions. I'm just curious, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, where the whole deposit or initial bonuses, you know, kind of uh, framework for bringing new customers, um, you know, is headed. 
Yeah, I think they're kind of the only industry that I've seen be successful giving away free money has definitely been something like ride sharing, for example, because you experience it, you understand the value and the convenience of it and go about your day, getting an Uber, getting a Lyft. And you're like, hey, I need to get one to get home. And you're you're a customer at that point. Um, So you see it be successful there. But I think online casino and online gaming is a bit different. Um, I also will say that some of these bonus abusers, it's something where you need to have the technological know-how to be able to identify this quickly uh, and work collaboratively collaboratively with the operator to understand why it's happening. Is it offer specific? Is it operator specific? Is it jurisdiction specific? Um, So being able to identify that quickly and then action upon that, I think is the most important piece. And um, that's something we take very seriously at gambling.com and we identify it quickly. It's they're pretty large anomalies. So when they happen, they're glaring. Um, but there's also pieces where uh, bonus abusers can be even more savvy. Um, and as a result, we need to be just as clever as they are and understand how they would potentially exploit them. But affiliates are a very important piece of the value chain of online casinos and, and iGaming as a whole. So if you develop these relationships with operators, they definitely understand where you're coming from and the expertise you have and the understanding and uh, the composition of the traffic. Um, so being able to identify those having measures in place and procedures in place to identify and help alert the operators is the best way to combat it. And I think that's something that we do exceptionally well, um, but it does come down to understanding the industry and understanding the impact that can have not only on the affiliates business, but also on the operators business um, and being able to combat that effectively is is a very important piece of, of building that relationship. Right. And, and let's use that as a segue to also talk about another kind of, I think, problem area in this industry, which is sharp betting. Right. Sure. And so that one's got to be even, I guess, tougher to kind of figure out in advance, of course, um, because you don't know until somebody's really in there. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, look, so I guess just let me take a step back here. You know, there's things like in Zen Sports, we have peer-to-peer. If somebody, you know, is a little too sharp, maybe we force them into the, the maker side of things versus uh, being a taker, um, you know, uh, you know, re- liquidity reduction. But this is certainly a hot topic uh, mm-hmm. as well, especially on social media and Twitter and whatnot uh, with regards to sharp betting and sharps getting frustrated that they get squeezed out and not being able to bet. But of course, <laughs> uh, an operator is not going to be in business very long if they allow too much of that. So, you know, just in general, like how much sharp betting do you think operators should allow um, just from a marketing standpoint, just as a way to promote goodwill and, and that sort of thing versus really putting the clamps down on someone who or a group uh, who is uh, clearly, you know, just there to take advantage or um, is, is just has a better system that, you know, is very difficult to figure out. Yeah, for sure. This is, this is a topic I have some, a great deal of experience in. Um, and I do have some fervent opinions on, uh, on We'd this love topic. to hear them. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think one is probably the, uh, on a broad strokes of it is an operator has no obligation to take any bet from anyone. Um, so people that get on social media and get some Twitter fingers and start going off about they can't get a bet down. If you're clever enough to be able to beat a book, you should be clever enough to figure out another way to get it down. Um, so to an extent, it's it's not the operator's fault. It's not the affiliate's fault. It's no one's fault. It's just a function of where it's at. Um, it's it's similar to, in some cases, I, there's a bunch of movies I used to watch where you have some 
guy come into a, an all-you-can-eat buffet and you already know he can he's a professional eater and he's going to eat you <laughs> out of all your profits for the day. Inevitably, you're not going to let that guy come back into your all-you-can-eat buffet. And sports betting is the very same way. As the operator is not obligated to take any bet, they can dictate who they're going to take a bet from. And they may not take the stake that the player wants, uh, so they may get limited. Um, but inevitably, good sports books use that information to make markets more efficient, uh, but they're not going to do that at their own expense. And as a result, they allow people to get a bet down. And it's not like you're paying them. It's not an automatic winner. No one has a crystal ball on what's going to happen. It's, it's more fun a function of probability and uh, the potential of an event occurring one way or the other. And so operators and suppliers can use this effectively. Um, and that's what they do. And they'll continue to do that. Uh, but given the commercial relationships and every operator being a for-profit business, they're not, uh, they're not obligated to do that. So um, as a result, it does, there's people on social media that do try to give the operators a, a bad name, but there's on the other side of that token, there's tons of players who have a great experience. You have big winners, big losers, um, people. It's a very great form of entertainment, in my opinion. Um, but ultimately, I think people need to come to the understanding and accept the fact that just because you want to place a hundred million dollar bet on the Jets to win, that doesn't mean someone's going to take it. Um, you may be able to find somewhere to take bits and pieces of that, um, but I'm using that as an exaggeration. Um, but the, the factor and the principle still remains the same. Yeah. And I, I think the, the thing that is lost on, uh, you know, those types of sports bettors is that, I mean, do they really think this business would be around if that happened? I mean, again, this is the only real industry or business where you can actually not just pay the business for uh, the services that they're providing, exactly. but actually get and extract money. I mean, if you walk into uh, a restaurant, you're never going to get paid out to eat. Uh, and exactly. if you walk, in, if you walk into a sporting event, they're not going to pay you to sit there and watch the game. Um, so I don't know why I really kind of, um, I really don't understand the, the kind of hellabaloo that, uh, that people raise about. It's really just not, it's not rocket science. I mean, businesses are around to make money. And so I actually look at, I, I actually look at it. I, I, I wish that, um, those kinds of sports bettors would, um, recognize that, um, they are getting this for an entertainment value, right? This is supposed to be an entertainment thing. And, you know, obviously they want to try and make a living off of it, but that's just, that's just really not, I mean, it's not in the cards. I mean, that's not, that's not how this industry was designed. Now, if you look at things like what we do with, with Zen Sports having the peer-to-peer -peer option, there is the ability to um, be a maker and offer the liquidity yourself. If you feel that strongly about it, okay, take the bookmaker side then on that um, and let other people accept your bet. Um, but we're going to stay out of it in that situation. And then that's just between you and the other parties in the system. And we just will facilitate it. Um, but it's interestingly enough, a lot of them don't want to be the maker then they just, they only want to be the taker. Um, and so it's just, it's just kind of this weird, interesting dynamic where they just expect everything and it's not really a give and take. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a function of, um, I've been fortunate enough to help run some of the largest books in the US and um, the UK as well. And it is a function of 
operators having limits for certain events. Uh, if you want to talk about the first half of a WNBA game, there's limits in place. An operator may only want to take on risk at a clip of a million dollars or $10 million or 500,000 euro. And once they get to that threshold, they're not going to take any more bets if that's something that they've firmly dictated that they don't want to take any more uh, action after the 500,000 euro limit. And that's where it is. The next person who tries to place a bet, whether it's for 100,000 euro or two euro, it's not going to, it's not going to get permitted. And it's a case by case basis and players do get categorically uh, limited, uh, but that's just the nature of the business. You know, you don't, you're, you don't have to take a bet from someone. And if you do hit the limits that you've dictated uh, that are going to help you be a profitable, successful company, um, it's kind of the, the unluck of the, the unlucky piece of the draw where you may be that, that person who uh, isn't able to get a bet down. Yeah. And I do look, I also believe that there are other options for those folks. I mean, there's daily fantasy sports where they're probably not going to get limited. Uh, and that's obviously very skill-based uh, as I mentioned before on the peer to peer or the trading market side of things, if they want to be the maker um, they're more than welcome to do so. If they feel that strongly about that bet with those odds uh, and that liquidity amount that they want to get on it, then they should offer it up. Um, and so I, I, I do believe more options like again, what we do with Zen sports, like with daily fantasy or, or trading exchanges, I believe more of those will pop up to provide those folks more options, but then it's up to them to then, you know, cross that bridge and, and, and take those options and not be steadfast on saying, oh, no, I'm only going to take it against the book. I'm only going to go up against the book type of thing. Um, you know, I mean, there's only so much room for so many folks that have, uh, you know, sharp information or that feel, you know, strongly that they have value on, on a particular bet uh, to do it. Um, so, you know, uh, at that point, they have to either evolve or, or move on to, to something else. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I would like to ask about the international market. So we've, uh, Zen Sports has operated internationally for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the pod, we are going to be expanding into the U.S. Uh, you know, our first four-way will be in Nevada, uh, hopefully by August, and then into more additional states. And our big focus is actually the U.S. moving forward because it is, you know, what we believe the, the largest market and, and the fastest growing one. Um, but I'm really fascinated also by the international market. I know you focus mostly in the U.S., but I'll still ask if you have any information on this or if you, um, you know, have any um, experience that you'd like to share. I find the international market, like, it's, it's unbelievably mature. Like, there is very, there, it feels like there are, A, very few casual sports bettors. B, they know, they know exactly what they want to do. Um, it's like, I am just betting NBA over-unders, or I am just betting MLB point spreads, or whatever it might be, uh, and they won't touch anything else. Whereas it feels like the U.S. has more casual bettors, um, more cross-sectional betting, um, more pollen cross-pollination uh, across different areas, and, and maybe even cross-casino gaming and stuff like that. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what the international market looks like to you, what the, you know, the prospects are for it in the coming years. Um, is it really tapped out? Is it um, still got some juice left in it? I'm um, just kind of curious on that versus, say, the U.S., which is obviously just getting going. Yeah, I would say they're they're mostly just different. And it, it is a, a function of the composition of the, the types of events uh, U.S. players like to wager on. Uh, if you take 
take the UK, for example, you can take a host of European countries, um, Asian countries, Africa as well, South America. Uh, they just wager differently. Different sports are very, um, are much more popular. You take harness racing in Sweden, for example, it's the most one of the most popular sports in the country. If you go to Colorado, no one really knows what horse harness racing is. Um, similarly, you have someone who in Colombia that wants to wager on the national soccer leagues. There's probably not that many people in Pennsylvania that are going to wager on uh, Colombia national soccer leagues. Uh, so it definitely is a different function and they play at different clips uh, during the week, which affect betting habits. Uh, you have people in Europe that probably don't bet as often or as frequent as U.S. players do, because if you're, if you're someone in Pittsburgh, you can bet on the Pirates, the Penguins, the Steelers. Um, you have a bunch of different sports throughout the year, whereas if you're a English Premier League fan, uh, you have you bet on on the weekends and uh, it's not all year long. So it is significantly different in comparison to uh, some of that. And that affects the betting habits. So if they have disposable income, they may be betting more or less per game. Uh, and they may just be betting on different types of things. Um, so it's, it's significantly different. Yeah. And that makes sense because a lot of the betting of course is on American sports and those that are based here have multiple teams that they're rooting for. I mean, my Bucks, Brewers, Packers, and San Jose Sharks fan. So, you know, uh, if I want to bet on my team, I've got four of them to choose from. Whereas if I'm in Europe and I'm only soccer, uh, I've got one. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. There is a function of uh, you, you do have European athletes playing U.S. sports. So if you look at um, mm -hmm. in a country like Spain, they have a lot of really great NBA players. Um, similarly, in the U.K., you have a lot of former uh, European soccer players playing in the MLS. Um, and so it does travel, travel quite a bit. Um, it's just, it's different. And it's not to say one is better than the other. Um, they just have different, different sports. And I'd say the U S market is much more at right now. Players just want to try everything on the menu. So they're betting on a bunch of different sports, a host of different markets, whereas the UK, as they're more mature, people have a better understanding of what they have an affinity for and what types of sport they like to bet on and how to bet on them. Um, if you open any, any sports betting application in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or wherever um, that's regulated in the US, uh, there's, a, there's so many different markets that you can wager on. Um, you don't even have to wager on a specific team or have a result. You can wager on whether or not Aaron Rodgers is gonna throw a pick in the third drive of the second quarter. Um, that has nothing to do with the game, but it's extremely exciting to to watch. Um, whereas in the UK, it's it's a little bit harder to to bet on some of those micro markets, uh, given that there's not as many stoppages in in time, um, that the games are just performed a little differently. It's so funny you bring that up because apparently Adam Silver was talking to Rob Manfred um, and saying, "No, don't speed up your games. Keep them at the pace that they are." so that people can bet on the next play. <laughs> I couldn't believe yeah. that he was saying that. That was pretty funny. But I do believe, I agree with you, that in-game betting is going to be hugely, hugely popular. Uh, tough in the NBA because it's too fast and probably hockey as well to some degree. Um, but football and baseball lend itself perfectly to it, um, you know, in terms of the, the stoppages in between play. So uh, I do agree. And, and actually, let me ask you this, because 
you know, I think that kind of a little bit gets to the, you know, kind of the attention span that, uh, you know, I'll just say, hey, millennials and Gen Y, Gen Z, uh, I don't think it's quite the same as, uh, say, the baby boomers. Um, they want quick, fast action. Um, I think futures bets are on their way out. I think in-game betting is on its way in. And um, I also think things like esports betting and just, you know, just kind of next generation stuff is just going to proliferate. What are your thoughts on kind of from a demographics or age generational, uh, uh, you know, kind of betting patterns, what you're seeing out there? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is just volume. So I, I definitely would agree with you if you're talking about the volume of bets, if you're talking about the total sum or the handle of all of those bets, I'd probably go on the other side of that. Um, just from a disposable income perspective, an eight to 21 year old kid doesn't have as much, well, may not have as dis much disposable income as uh, someone 50 years old playing $100 a handed blackjack. Um, it's just different. Um, it's not to say one's better than the other. It's just, uh, it's just fundamentally different. But as a result, there are so many new markets that people are able to wager on. Um, futures markets, I think, will, I think will remain consistent just because of the massive payouts that are uh, potentially available. Um, and it gives people somebody, someone something to look forward to, which I think has um, some intrinsic value for people that uh, if you want to bet on the Jaguars to win, uh, to win the division or win the conference or potentially win the Super Bowl, you can get some, some very attractive prices on that. Um, so I think people really enjoy that. Um, but I definitely agree with you that uh, the, the introduction of new sports um, and, and live betting has been around for, for quite some time and that will continue to proliferate around the U.S. and prove valuable for operators, not just for uh, retaining customers, but the economics are very supportive of in-game betting. Uh, Esports. We're going to have to see how regulators handle uh, the potential conflicts of having underage players um, or competitors uh, be in, in some of these sports. I think there's definitely appetite to have it. I just think they need to get comfortable with it. Um, and I think it very much is a function of, uh, I don't know so much about it and maybe we'll worry about that next time. Uh, but I do think that's where the industry is, is certainly headed. Well, it's interesting. Nevada actually legalized esports betting last year when COVID hit because all the other sports were gone. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's something that's already going on. Um, so it's in other countries, it's available. Um, it, it's kind of, you need to, if you can regulate it properly, it's going to make it even more safer. Right. So there, there's something that it's not just a few people that watch esports. It's a lot. Oh, yeah. uh, and so as a result, the demand is there. And when the demand is there, um, I'd expect the, the regulation to follow. Yeah. And I do think the esports leagues will also have to want it. I mean, uh, you know, we've kind of chatted with uh, like Riot Games and a couple of other large game publishers mm -hmm. and they're, they're still not really that excited to, to support the gambling aspect, which means they don't really want to make it easy to get the data and they don't want to make it easy to manage the schedules and all the basic things you need to be able to run a successful, you know, uh, book. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, managing a sports book is a lot about data. Um, and when you can't get you know, the proper data and the lines and they want it, they start the match four hours early, you know, then scheduled, which stuff like that happens all the time in esports tournaments and leagues. It's just, it's just very kind of fly by night off the cuff in terms of how it's run and managed. Exactly. It makes it super tough to be able to manage betting around that. Yeah. It's exceptionally difficult. And, and for me, just on personally, you need to, at some point, 
be have constraints in place to manage the integrity of the league right. or the sport or the game. And that's not to say that I, you need some overarching big brother to watch everything and anything anyone does or drinks or eats or stays at or says on social media. I mean it on the, on the case that people need to be convinced that everything's on the up and up. And I think just generally that generation is so skeptical of things that you get to a point where uh, you need to make sure that there's someone who's, who's having a watchful eye on things and uh, not to be overbearing or micromanaging, just similar to the NBA, or the NFL, that there are structures in place to uh, combat potentially illicit activity. Right. And of course, you I mean, as you mentioned, you have younger players on the esports teams. They may not be making as much money. They may be easier targets for, um, you know, illegal fraud rings that, you know, want to, um, you know, basically fix the action or whatnot. Exactly. So, you know, you really have to make sure that those things are in place. I mean, LeBron James isn't going to throw a Lakers game. I mean, why would he risk his entire fortune for, you know, exactly. $25,000, but, but yeah. a, a, an 18 year old esports player that's never seen $25,000, they might be pretty tempted to, you know, kind of. So, yeah, I agree with you that that part has really got to be flushed out um, in order to make the betting of it, in, uh, you know, integrity. Uh, but I think it's actually pretty exciting and interesting. Yeah, hundred percent agree. It's, uh, it's exciting. I think there'll be, Things don't generally move as fast as we like them, but I think there's enough inertia to, to push them in the right direction. Yeah, totally. Last question I just want to kind of ask you on the uh, iGaming casino side before we wrap up here is, sure. do you feel, I mean, sports betting is a clear example of something that nobody's going to want to walk into a physical brick and mortar to do. I mean, it's something you want to do when you're at home watching the game or with your buddies or at a sports bar or at the event itself. Uh, there's no point in going to a, a casino or to a sports book to, to place a bet that's silly. However, you know, table games and even slot machines to some degree, a little bit more of a, maybe of a social event or where you need to do it in person. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm in Vegas for the weekend. I want to play some blackjack. I want to play some craps. I want to feel the excitement of, you know, a craps table while I've got a, a drink in my hand and uh, you know, at four in the morning or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just kind of curious, like, do you, do you feel that the iGaming uh, casino mobile gaming market will continue to grow when maybe people look at it as more of a of an experience thing to do in person versus sports betting? Yeah, I would. I would. I think I disagree with you a bit. I think it's. I think you know, they're completely different. I think the online sports betting experience and the retail sports betting experience are kind of on the same token as online casino and online uh, and land based casinos. There are, I mean, I've opened probably at least a dozen retail sports books across the U.S. And the night those things open and there's a big event, I've been through a couple Super Bowls, a couple March Madness events. It's exciting. And it's not something where people aren't obviously going there to place like the, the example we just gave of Aaron Rodgers throwing a touchdown in the second drive of the third quarter. That's very tough to do in a retail sports book. That's a fact. It's just a little bit. There's ways to get around it and make it easier. Um, but having the congregating effect and the camaraderie of being with your buddies or with your friends or uh, with a larger group of similar like minded fans who are on the same side of it. Um, I was just looking at uh, a couple, obviously, a couple weeks ago from March Madness, a couple of my buddies were sending me videos uh, of them in Nevada and in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New York at sports books. 
and it's just a lot of fun. You're not really going there for uh, to necessarily to bet. You're going there just as you would go to a bar or a restaurant or a lounge or somewhere to take in the game. Um, it's just a lot of fun. And it's, it, it becomes a, an amenity for the casinos uh, that can help them make money, sure, of course, but uh, it's definitely a function that uh, it brings some excitement to the property. And I think similarly, if you are a blackjack player, it's a lot of fun to be at the casino at two o'clock in the morning playing blackjack or being on the roulette table with a bunch of your buddies um, and somebody's getting hot or if you're on the craps table and, and someone starts rolling, it's definitely a function of that. Online casino, I think, is, is a little bit different. It's more for people who really love the entertainment of gaming. Um, and it's not to say one's better than the other. Uh, I think they serve different purposes at different times of the day and uh, potentially different, uh, different types where people are because not everyone lives close to a casino. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's people who want the thrill of gambling that enjoy gambling responsibly. They have that option now. Um, but if you do live close to a city or you're in, you happen to be in Vegas for March. I mean, March Madness in Vegas is the funnest is probably one of my favorite sports betting events where there's no games being played in that state at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, it's, it's so much fun. And I think it's, it's the different products Retail sports betting and land-based casino versus online casino just focuses on uh, different appetites people have. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's uh, just very exciting where the industry's headed. I, I'm just thrilled that finally we've gotten past over the last few years over the taboo nature of <clears throat> um, you know being able to uh, gamble and, and participate in gaming outside of just say Nevada. Um, and bringing what was really underground above ground in a more controlled yeah. regulated environment, uh, which is so much safer and better for all parties involved. Um, and, and the rea- and when people go, well, I don't know, you know, if, if this is the right thing to do, I'm like, look, people are going to bet on, we'll go back to the sports betting. People are going to bet on sports, whether you make it easy or hard for them, whether you make it above ground or underground, why not make it above ground regulated, controlled, um, in a safe way, um, that, uh, just, you know, makes it better for everybody. And, and I'm so glad that the, this country is, um, you know, quickly moving in that direction to uh, just make that happen everywhere, which is, it's really, really exciting. Yeah. I mean, you can turn on any business channel on TV is talking about online sports betting and legislation, having similar conversations like we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's people who are really making a career out of it. There's media companies that are purely focused on it. There's specific sports betting shows on, you go on a Sunday morning before kickoff, anywhere from 10 to 12 p.m. Uh, or to 1 p.m. my time here, it's, it's you're inevitably going to end up people talking about point spreads and totals, even throughout coverage of games, people are talking about it. So I definitely agree with you, and I'm thankful that it has become much less taboo as it was. I think there right. definitely is a generation and a type of person that does have a problem with uh vices and vice culture and and think it's synonymous with cigarettes and alcohol and guns and things that aren't necessarily uh, good for society but you need to give people the opportunity to make decisions for themselves and if they do it responsibly in a regulated market where they're protected uh, i think is is a win-win for everybody oh 100 percent. i totally agree um well this has been amazing max uh you've been an awesome guest i really appreciate appreciate you having me yeah, I really appreciate you joining us. I know it's late uh, for you there in the... Nah, no worries. <laughs> so I'll let you go, uh, get some work done, get some sleep. And That's uh, right. really appreciate it and have a wonderful night.
Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. We'll talk soon.